COVID-19 has affected our relationship with technology in many ways, from the pleasures of mass online choirs to the perils of endless Zoom meetings that are rendering us Zoombies. Connectivity is so hardwired in our lives that many are reassessing the virtues of being disconnected. Ten years ago, William Powers published Hamlet's Blackberry, a book that urged us to take an internet Sabbath every now and again. It was a precinct idea, even if the book's title sounds rather retro now, but there was a reason for his choice, as he explains today on Media Files. He's a journalist who used to work at the Washington Post and is now an online technology consultant, and he joined me by Zoom from his home in Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Thank you for having me on, and I have such fond memories of my book tour in Australia. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the, is the notion of a digital Sabbath, which you're one of the very early people to talk about that idea. What, what was it, and how did you come across it? So, so on the Sabbath, yeah, so that was the part of the book that lent itself to conversation the most because it was something from my family life that was our attempt to rein in what felt like the chaos and the addictiveness of digital life, even back then, you know, the, the book actually, in terms of storytelling, goes back to like 2006, because that was when I started thinking about the downsides of the digital revolution. And although I am an early adopter type, and in many ways, a techno enthusiast, I really felt like I was a bit of a canary in the coal mine, in terms of feeling some of these effects. I had a child who was just the right age, he was born in 97, so he really was a Generation Z kid who was really growing up with these things. You know, the smartphone came when he was still young, so that was another factor for us. And basically, as I tell it in the book, my wife Martha and I, we just looked at each other and realized we were spending so much time with our backs to each other, you know, which is focused into our screens. And we didn't even have smartphones at the time, you know, but just the internet itself, the power of it it was really taking over and we saw it happening to our son as well. So just one weekend, we just, I think I said it, but we had it together, the idea that we would launch into an effort to be offline on weekends, to spend the whole weekend offline. And back then, because we didn't have smartphones, all we had to do was unplug the modem. And then, you know, we, none of us could connect to the internet. We could still get texts, but that wasn't the big problem back then. So as I recount in the book, you know, it was really shockingly hard to be offline for the first couple months every weekend. And there were tears in the case of my son. And, you know, we were kind of lost the first few weekends. Like, how can we function in the world without this? And then you, then you thought, you know, I sat back and said, but wait a minute, you know, humans have been alive for tens of thousands of years in society and they pulled it off, you know. And so not only did we laugh at ourselves and just begin to work around it. But after a couple months, like eight weeks, we really began to feel the upsides. And we really began to look forward to the time offline because we well, realized- What were the upsides? What yeah, the, the upsides upside? were, yeah, ability to kind of focus on whatever was in front of us, whether it was a person or a book or a bird flying by outside the window. You know, there was this sense of being present again in our lives. And there was also a sense of time expanding, you know, because a lot of time was being eaten up then as now by digital society, which is basically what it was. And a lot of the stuff we were being drawn to is good things, you know, all this amazing content and things to watch and things to read and listen to. And it's rich stuff. But, you know, we're very distractible creatures. And you get into a state where there's so much stuff tempting you that you're just hopping from one to the next and never really settling down and, and really making the most of it. 
And so mm -hmm. that's what we were able to do more and more was make the most of our time together and of what we happen to be doing at any moment. And so a decade later, how do you, that, that idea, the idea that we are, we are connected almost all of the time and that it is a good idea from time to time to disconnect does seem to me to be quite widely accepted. Whether it's widely followed is another question, but widely accepted that if you are on your screens 24-7, then the whole world starts to feel a bit crazy after a while. Would you agree with that? I do agree with that. I think that you and I might be of a generation where that makes the most sense of all the, you know, uh, compared to younger people. But I do think, I have noticed there are a lot of converts to this point of view, particularly among late millennials and then Gen Z. Like they've been on board for a long time with this point of view, most of the ones I know. And I find that the reaction to raising ideas like this with people went from 10 years ago when the book came out, it was sort of like, my family spends weekends offline and would be like, huh, you know, that was the response. Now, anyone who says they do anything remotely like that, even like half a day offline gets applauded by most people, you know, good for you. I wish I did that more often, you know, so that's a pretty big cultural shift. And it's part of an, an awakening that I think was needed, you know. But you also seem to be suggesting that maybe among younger people, you know, not Gen Z or Gen X or Y, but younger people who've in a sense grown up in a completely digital world, you know, under 20, 20 to 30, that maybe they don't think that or that it, that idea is, is harder for them to understand? What, what are you suggesting there? I think it's, it's a mix. I think, you know, those, those folks who were young as gaming was coming up and those things that kids did, say millennials, you know, they still, I think, have a, you know, there's a kind of a general, more of a positive feeling among them, even though, you know, they are big on digital sabbaticals, a lot of them and so forth. But I think they were kind of at this pivot point. And now the youngest, the, the Gen Zs, my son's in college, he's in Gen Z. I mean, it's like conventional wisdom among that, that age group that, wait a minute, we were born into this thing. We didn't ask for it. It's been overwhelming from the day we set foot on the, on the earth, you know, and mm -hmm. nobody can really tame it, you know, and you have to come back to yourself and develop ways to do it. And they seem to do that organically. Let's deal with the, the matter of the title of the book, which 10 years ago, when I, when I first read the book, Hamlet's Blackberry seemed like a, uh, a, a smart and interesting title, you know, we'll come mm -hmm. to the, if you like, the meaning of the kind of pun in the title, but the, black, the Blackberry is a device is not really with us anymore. Why did you call it that? And what was going on in your mind? Because at one level, it looks like it's one of the things that's kind of gone off like overripe fruit. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So it was very conscious. I, um, there were two reasons we went for that title. My, I, my publisher had to be convinced somewhat. But basically, I had written a paper at Harvard that was the beginning of the book as a fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School that was called that that was kind of about this belief that people had back in 2006 when I wrote it, that we wouldn't have print on paper by about 2015, paper would be gone. Of course, that turns out to be completely wrong. And so I wrote a, a paper questioning that, an essay that led to Harvard published it and it led to the, my getting approached about writing a book. So because that was the original title, I was attached to it. And then part two was that the story of Hamlet that I tell in one of my chapters about sort of the history of technology going back through time, you know, is a kind of a very grabby one and everybody knows who Hamlet is. And so it felt like a good choice to have in the title. I think my publisher 
asked me about going with iPhone because the iPhone, I talk about the iPhone in the book, it existed. And I didn't want to be publishing a book that was kind of, in a sense, helping to market the hot new device. I didn't want to be on the bandwagon. Maybe it would have been smarter to go out and handle the iPhone, but I just wasn't comfortable with that. So they went with my inclination. You know, the book was a bestseller with that title, so I don't think they were disappointed. But yeah, that's why. And I kind of like that it's sort of a, the title feels like a vestige of an earlier era because it need it would need updating if you wrote it today. It's very much of its moment. And I know that because I have stayed very much in the technology world. I mean, I work there now full time with technologists mm -hmm. and and I'm sort of a technologist myself. So I know, you know, how much things have changed. And in that sense, the title accurately conveys its the book as a product of a moment. So what what sort of things what sort of things have other things in the book i mean you mentioned shakespeare and and in a sense one of the things about the book which i th i think still works well because i've been rereading it is that you you in a sense look at the history of communications through seven main thinkers and philosophers sophocles seneca johann gutenberg and shakespeare and marshall McLuhan and henry david thoreau and there's one other who i'm forgetting franklin uh, ben franklin and Franklin, to me, it was like a history of communications, but not in a way that I'd read before. Perhaps if you could recount the story of, or why you bring Sophocles in, uh, and how, what that Socrates. tells us about the way in which we communicate, because yeah. I think that, to me, is one of the enduring values of the book. Yes. Yeah. So just to step back from that for a second, just broadly, why did I do this approach with these philosophers, is that I wrote a first draft of the book and handed it in. And it was really, really bad, actually. And I kind of knew that the next morning. And my editor called me up a week later and said, no, I could publish this, but I wouldn't really recommend it. And I said, why? And she said, it doesn't really like, you know, you were telling me all those books you were reading from the past about all those philosophers who helped you and you never mentioned any of them. Those are really good stories. Why didn't you use those? And I said, well, I sort of felt like I'm supposed to be the philosopher, not them. And she said, I don't know, you should re-examine that. So that's when I went back to these different writers who had helped me think about this challenge by visiting their eras and the technologies they were struggling with. So in Socrates' case, during his lifetime and Plato's lifetime, the written word was the new technology. Written language was taking off in Greece. It had been around for a while, but it was really catching on. And there's a, there's a Socratic dialogue that's a, that dis discusses that. It's partly about that. It's called Phaedrus. And you see Socrates in this dialogue telling his young student, Phaedrus, stay away from that written language stuff. It'll ruin your mind. I mean, that's really his message. And of course, you know, here we are, readers. It's one and of ruin the your mind. Why? Yeah. What's, why was it going to ruin Phaedrus' yeah. mind? Interesting, interesting question. Because Socrates said, you know, the way we think now, our thoughts are alive and constantly able to change in the moment and go to new places, which is, of course, what happens in his amazing dialogues. And if you fixate on something on the page, your thoughts will be frozen and dead, and they won't be able to grow in new directions. So it's sort of an example of what McLuhan wrote much later, which is these, these different technologies that we use can actually shape, you know, how our minds process things. And mm -hmm. Socrates was pointing that out. So that was part one of why I wrote that. Part two is that in order to have this great conversation, Socrates and his student take a walk outside the wall of Athens to get a, the, the, the city of Athens to get away from the noise and the chaos of, of basically the public square in Athens. And that is another thing I talk about in the book is as technology grows, we need these spaces apart more and more to kind of be grounded 
and to get that quality of, of state of mind and of, of experience that we want. Yeah, and the there is a, I mean, one of the if additional revelatory things I thought about was that the way in which we think about, to the extent that we think about Socrates or Plato or those things, we have a we see it through a particular prism or lens, and it's the Socratic dialogue, you know, well established as a kind of form of discourse and debate and so on. But seeing that particular tension between how people respond to the new technology. Obviously, we don't think of the of the written word as the new technology. Mm-hmm. It's very old. But to, to go back in time mentally or imaginatively, if you like, which is what you did and say, Socrates, brilliant man, thinks that the new technology is going to be a real threat, but actually it isn't. So exploring that is was, to me, a very interesting way to view the current our current uh, situation where we're dealing with new technologies and how do we deal with them, what's good about them, what's bad, because often the the debates or the coverage of these things gets mired in a kind of you're, you're an early adopter versus you're a techno Luddite and so on. Yeah. And, and, and those positions get encrusted, if you like, onto the debate rather than alive. So to go back in time and see how, in a sense, a similar debate was playing out with earlier forms of technology was was I found fascinating. Thank you. You know, I was also trying to send a message about myself with that story, which is that there had been a few books about digital life being overwhelming before mine, but they Mm. were very pessimistic, negative books written by very nice people, but they had a very dark view of where all this is heading. And I am really an optimist. I'm just a congenital optimist. And I just knew I wasn't going to be writing a pessimistic book because I do think we can figure it out and we generally do over time. And so pointing at Socrates as the doubter who was so wrong was about that technology was my way of saying, let's be careful about just throwing the baby out with the bathwater here. You know, this stuff could have great potential as the written word did, obviously. So let's, let's, from the vantage point now of 10 years later, it's easy right now in the middle of a global pandemic to be pessimistic about the world and the state of the world. So let's say that very clearly. What is your perspective now of thinking 10 years later about the way in which technology has developed? What are some of the things that have developed that are positive still in your view? And what are some of the things that have either become negative and or that you didn't foresee at the time that you wrote the book? Yeah, so I would say on, uh, I'll take those two sides one at a time. On the, on the positive side, I didn't foresee, and you can't foresee, you know, some of these innovations that have really made digital, that have taken, one of my mantras in the book is depth. We really want technologies that can take our lives to a deeper place, especially communications technologies. So obviously the book is the masterpiece of that. And, you know, that's why Socrates was wrong. But I, you know, it was hard to imagine if there would be innovations in our lifetime that would take the very surfacey quality of the internet and take it to a new place. And I think there already have been since the book came out. So for example, one would be the amazing explosion of podcasts. Those are really a wonderful innovation and are rightly massively popular. And I kind of twin them in my mind with, I'm not so much of a podcast person as an as a um, audio books person but it's a similar idea. And, you know, this, I mean, I'm actually listening to an audio version of Plato's Republic now, coincidentally. And I've read Plato's Republic before, but this is like a whole other level. It's so well acted and so engaging and funny and it's better. 
you know, it's better than the old versions. And so I didn't foresee that this stuff that's good would ramp up so quickly. And I can think of many other examples, you know, I mean, I think there's an aspect of texting that has become richer and interesting part of our lives where we can add the photos and, and we have this language we use in texts. You know, I have WhatsApp conversations with friends in these far flung places that are really nice part of my life, you know? So all Quick of that. And witty and fun and so on. Yeah, and it's a way of, you know, having these wonderful relationships, keeping them afloat, you know, and, and different from what you, we used to write letters, you know, and so those are good things. I would say the negative, the big, big, big negative thing I didn't really foresee, and I think most people didn't, I hinted at it in the book, I sort of was sensing it a little bit, but wow, it is so much bigger than I thought, is basically the problem with capitalism combined mm -hmm. with technology and the massive power of these few companies and these few individuals over our lives now and over society. And the way in which, I don't know if you say it this way in Australia, but what we call shareholder value, you know, the way in which the stock market yes. valuations of these companies is driving decisions that affect our politics, our family life, our peace of mind, we're having this wonderful conversation now about surveillance capitalism, thanks partly to this Shoshana Zuboff book of 2019 yes. that I talk about a lot because I think it was a landmark book. And that is really, really important. And I think that it's, so it's no longer just about, oh, technology, oh, addiction, blah, or whatever. It's really about the business model. And the place that these things are coming from is rotten in many ways. And we have to fix that. Okay. So one of the things just to to come back to that period 10 years ago, the way in which the news media was covering that then just emerging world of new technology in a big business sense, you know, the Facebook fuse, old Google, et cetera. How was the news media covering those companies at that time? And do you see a change in the way they cover them now? Yeah, absolutely. So back then it was still very much, and I do have a few moments in the book where I kind of do a little bit of a swipe at, at this. It was kind of a fanboy, fangirl approach to technology. Like Steve Jobs and his ilk were all the rock stars of the time. And you went to the press conference in the hope that you would get some scrap from them, you know, that you could use. And really, in a sense, the journalism was promoting the products. Basically, that was kind of it, which was unfortunate. It was very uncritical. Mm. I wrote a column or two about this when I was still a journalist. Got pushback from people you know, what are you so angry about? You know, these, these devices are great, blah, blah, blah. But it's funny to see some of those people who were the fanboys and fangirls of technology in the media back then are now doing the super, the same people, I won't mention any names, but they're doing the super critical stories now because the wow. zeitgeist changed and they kind of shifted their sales in the same direction. And so now you're seeing this, you know, very constructively critical and questioning coverage of everything those companies do. And it's, it's late, but I'm glad we were having it. And, you know, there needs to be a lot more of it. Because at the time, I, I think it's fair to say that there wasn't much, you know, there, there was a line that came up sometime in the 2013, 14, somewhere around there that went to the whole question of a, if a technological product was free, because that was one of the great early mantras, this everything should be free. Yeah. And then the line, the trope came out that, well, you know that if it's free, you know, the cost is in you, as in you are the product. You are the, the product, the yeah. Companies are wanting to, to look at. Surveillance capitalism is the kind of 
the later phrase for it, but you are the product. They want to see what you're doing and then they will sell your micro habits all gathered through the various technological devices. Yep. And that's one of the sources of the power of the business model. And yet back then, that was virtually not written about at all. And in a sense, it was like a Trojan horse. The horse is well and truly inside the gates before anyone's really quite tweaked to the fact. And then it's too late. You know, the horse has grown to massive proportions, really, as you say, with the stock market valuations of these companies are the biggest in the world by stock market yeah. valuation. Yeah, there were two, there were a couple of things that enabled that to happen. One of them was purely cultural. It was the fact that the early digital days, there were these pioneers like John Perry Barlow and Stuart Brand, and they were these kind of visionary, almost philosophers who really thought that we were moving into a play, like a, almost a kind of a paradise. Digital was going to be a place of a new kind of freedom. And there's a, I, I sometimes lead these seminars for the Aspen Institute about technology and, and, and the future. And, and I often assign this um, one that's worth reading today because it's such a relic from the past. It's John Perry Barlow's Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, 1996. And it is the most optimistic, bright-eyed, you know, sort of view of these technologies you could possibly have. And that kind of framed... And I don't fault people, I'm an optimist, as I said, I don't fault people, for being, fault people for being hopeful, but that framed the first at least decade and a half, and it allowed all of these companies to kind of fall under that umbrella of, you know, Facebook, we're connecting the world, you know, I forget what Twitter's was, you know, it was, it was kind of like, we're do-gooders, we're not capitalists, in a way, that was the... <laughs> the framework. And I think that's why it took so long for journalists to be, that's part of why it took so long for journalists to become critical, because there was a lot of cultural hype around the possibilities for this that didn't okay. come out, didn't pan out. So just finally, because you may or may not have seen that there is a move afoot in Australia through our consumer and competition watchdog regulator and the federal government have acknowledged now that there is a problem, a serious problem, not only with the business model of mainstream media, but the flow on effect to the ability of those companies to fund journalism. And that most of that advertising revenue, which they used to earn, which funded the journalism, has gone to the big technology companies, the Googles and Facebooks and so on. So mm -hmm. they're wanting to bring in a, a mandatory code for the big technology companies to bargain with the media companies and provide them some kind of compensation for the fact that they're using or they're benefiting from their, their journalism. And you may have seen Facebook has responded pretty, pretty strongly to that. I saw um, that. Cut off, cut off news. What, what's your view of that as an issue? Do you think it's the right way to go for a government and a you know, competition regulator? And how do you think that might play out? Well, I do think it's an example of what we're talking about, this kind of clash of shareholder value with society's mm -hmm. best interests. I was still, you know, despite everything we've seen from Facebook, I was surprised at the tone and the content of that response which I have been following the story mostly on Twitter. And it was kind of, you know, in a way, in terms of journalism and these platforms, it was kind of like, okay, the mask is really off now. And we know you are really not in this to help journalism at all or to keep it alive. And so where do we go from here? I mean, it was, it was a sad moment. I thought, you know, one of the richest companies in the world taking such a hard stand because there was something very promising in what was being proposed, I felt. And I don't know where that's going to wind up. You know, it's such a hard moment, as you know, for journalism. And I'm thrilled that, you know, we have some newspapers that are still thriving here. 
and um, you know we'll probably survive. But wow, it's really they're the exceptions. All right. Well, it is. It is as you say. It's very hard to see how exactly that is going to play out. But yeah, I think one thing I'll just finish on the the note that I do think it is clear from the vantage point of ten years that the the, the book still had your book Hamlet's Blackberry still has a lot to tell us and still is well worth reading. So thank you very much, Bill, for your time. Thank you. It's you been know. terrific. It's been great. Thank you for having me. William Powers, journalist and author of Hamlet's Blackberry. Production by Chris Scanlon. I'm Matthew Ricketson. That's it from Media Files. See you next time. Thank you.